Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. That is here. You've no doubt heard the old saying that an NBA best-of-seven playoff series doesn't begin until the home team loses, which, as I think about it, is kind of a stupid saying, considering the home team could win all seven games. So does that mean the series never started? In any case, the NBA Finals now meet that criteria with the Miami Heat winning Game 2, tying the series at 1-1. So what should we take from the first two games in the series into Game 3? A lot. There's also a lot we can't or shouldn't take from it. And maybe we should start there, since I more often than not see what people are taking from a game or a series that should not be taken. Does the series mean that the Heat, contrary to popular opinion, are actually as talented as the Denver Nuggets? No. The Nuggets, outside of Nikola Jokic, played on a spectrum from solid to terrible in Game 2. Bruce Brown and Aaron Gordon were solid. Christian Brown was unexpectedly solid, which probably puts him on par for his role with Jokic as far as exceptional in that you wouldn't expect anything from Christian and the fact that he was solid puts him a step above just about everybody else except Jokic. Now, Jamal Murray was okay, Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Michael Porter Jr. were terrible. And even Jokic, while he had 41 points, anybody who actually watched the game at both ends of the floor knows that the Miami Heat attacked him at every opportunity. Pick and roll with Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, which was uh, gets points for creativity from Eric Spolstra. They got busy. Uh, that was very effective for them. Jokic's challenge being a good defender was on full display. And I raised a lot of eyebrows when... The subject came up 
and I want to frame this correctly. The question was asked on FS1, has Nikola Jokic proved that he is the best player on the planet? And my three colleagues felt that yes, he has. And I dissented. I wasn't challenging the fact that Nikola Jokic might be the best player on the planet. I was challenging the idea that he had proved it through these playoffs. And this was, I believe, after game one of the NBA Finals. And the reason I was saying that is because we're coloring what we think of him based on who he has faced. And other than Anthony Davis, I don't know that he's faced anybody that I would put in the best player category. If he'd beaten a Giannis Antetokounmpo, if he'd beaten a Joel Embiid, who are two of the other guys that I would put in that conversation, then I would feel better about saying that Jokic is the best player on the planet. And even, even if they're not matched up face-to-face as they would be with him and Embiid, they're simply on the floor together, competing against each other. I would feel different. But here's the other part. We have undervalued the talent around Nikola Jokic. A year ago, he was, two years, yeah, a year ago, he was MVP for a fifth or sixth seeded team that didn't have Jamal Murray and didn't have Michael Porter Jr. And they were a sixth seed and nobody was talking about him. They were talking about being an MVP. They weren't talking about him being the best player on the planet. And then you add, Jamal Murray and you add Michael Porter Jr. and Aaron Gordon gets better and they sign uh, Bruce Brown and maybe Contavious Caldwell Pope. I'm trying to think if he was on there a year ago. In any case, they improve the roster and lo and behold, the team gets better. Certainly Jokic is a part of that in utilizing all these pieces. But all of that would suggest that the team got better he didn't necessarily get better. And if he didn't get better, and a year ago we didn't think he was MVP, or excuse me, wasn't the best player on the planet, then how at this point now are we automatically going to say he's the best player on the planet simply because of what the Denver Nuggets collectively have accomplished against, I would argue, lesser talent. They beat an impaired Phoenix Suns team, expected them to beat them. They beat a Lakers team that I expected them to beat. So I'm just looking at the recency bias. That's what I pushed against, that he's proved it. Maybe he is, but I wouldn't say that what's going on right now has proved it. And the way that the Miami Heat exposed him as a defensive player is part of my argument. That All that said, he was not the reason the main reason that they lost in game two. He wasn't a reason that they lost in game two. Even with his defensive deficiencies, he did enough offensively. Uh, If one or two other guys would have stepped up, they would have been okay. Two starters playing terrible, Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Michael Porter Jr. in the finals against a team like the Miami Heat and their weak link detecting coach, Eric Spolstra, is not going to get it done. And yet, it nearly did. Give the Nuggets... Five chances to tie the score, needing a three-pointer, and 11.4 seconds to do it. And I'm going to estimate that they would do it at least two out of five times, if not three out of five. 
That's what they needed to do to send game two into overtime after trailing by 12 with only three minutes and 39 seconds left. They held Miami to four points over the final three and a half minutes. Denver made three of five threes over the same stretch, including Murray's last attempt right before the buzzer. How could this happen to a Nuggets team that looked so dominant in game one, winning by 11 and taking the lead for good just over three minutes into the game? It's actually fairly easy to explain. First, Spolster made some smart adjustments, as I figured he would. I actually outlined the adjustments that I expected him to make in a story I wrote for FoxSports.com the day after game one. I said he should play a bigger lineup bringing Kevin Love back into the mix while still using reserve center Cody Zeller as well. It's usually been one or the other. I expected him to use both. Now, Love was effective against the Bucks in round one and the Knicks in round two, but played sparingly against the Celtics, never even taking his warm-ups off in the final two games of that series. That made sense at the time because Spolstra went with a quicker more dribble-drive-oriented team against the Celtics, figuring that transition buckets and being able to switch everything on defense would be more advantageous than having an extra rebounder on the floor, as it was. The problem he faced in Game 1 is that with Bam Adebayo on Jokic and Jimmy Butler on Aaron Gordon, the Nuggets were able to get Gabe Vincent switched on to Gordon, who then basically big-boyed him for 14 points at the rim on seven of eight shooting. Starting love for Caleb Martin and putting him on Gordon and having Jimmy guard Jamal Murray eliminated that strategy and made life a lot tougher on Jamal Murray. I also suggested that they not double Jokic and make him a scorer, which is something he can do, obviously, but it's not his first inclination. He's a little bit like LeBron James in that, in that regard. If you asked him to go get 60 to win a game, that doesn't come natural to him. And they basically asked him to do that in this in game two, and he scored well, but he scored 41. They needed a little bit more. There's a reason that as good as he is, he was 18th in the league in scoring. Where he's really lethal, and the reason he's a triple-double machine, is that he's so good at inviting the double team and finding his open teammate with a pass that leads to an easy open shot more times than not. He will go get buckets when he feels that his team needs them. Flow is a little stuttery. The offense has lulled. He has a good feel for when he needs to go and get something, but he doesn't do it relentlessly, and he doesn't always do it when he necessarily has the best matchup. He's thinking about how he keeps his teammates involved. It's something you love about him without question, but... My ultimate thing is, are you making the most out of your talent? And there's situations where I believe that he has the capability of scoring more and it would be in the best interest of the Denver Nuggets if he did. Now, Coach Mike Malone and Jokic clearly anticipated that the Heat would try to make him a scorer in Game 2, and they wanted to prove it faulty. Jokic taking nine first-quarter shots after taking only five through the first three quarters of Game 1 and only one shot in the first 12 minutes of game one. He made five of nine in the first quarter in game two. It was good, wasn't crazy good. 
it was still as aggressive as I've ever seen him. Not just taking shots, but immediately driving whenever the opportunity presented itself, rather than backing his way into the paint. As effective as he can be doing that, it slows the tempo of the game and invariably leads to the Nuggets trading two-pointers with threes by the Heat if the Heat's long-range shots are falling, which they were in Game 2. Max Struess, after not making a shot in Game 1, hit four threes in the first quarter. Jokic finished, as I said, with 41 points, but he only had four assists. I also suggested that Spolster might put six-foot point guard Kyle Lowry on Jokic, which the social media casuals wasted no time dragging me for suggesting. Even though I pointed out it was a strategy that Spolster has actually used before, to great effect, but putting Lowry on Mitchell Robinson against the Knicks and Al Horford against the Celtics. I still find it hilarious that people have the audacity to not watch the games or not understand what they're watching and then call me an idiot publicly for what I am observing. I wasn't suggesting a steady diet of that matchup and maybe I should have been more clear. But even though Jokic is far better than either of those bigs, Mitchell Robinson or, Robinson or Al Horford, he looks at uncomfortable at times with a strong, stocky player underneath him. I believe the Sixers used a similar strategy to great effect when they faced uh, the Nuggets by putting 6'5 forward P.J. Tucker on him. Now, Spo didn't use Lowry in Game 2, but he did put 6'3 guard Gabe Vincent on Jokic in the fourth quarter in several instances. And it was the same principle, and it worked. As I explained, it wasn't a matter of stopping Jokic, but simply inducing him to look for his shot rather than getting everyone involved. And when he gets the ball and he has Gabe Vincent on him, his teammates are more than likely to try to clear out and give him room to go to work as opposed to demanding the ball or getting in the, making cuts in order to try to get a pass and, and get the ball themselves. Everybody can see the mismatch. It also meant that pick and rolls weren't going to get Bam switched on to Murray with Gabe on, uh, on Jokic, which is something that Murray exploited in game one. They would get that pick and roll. They would get the switch. Murray would back out, either hit a three or go by Bam. Finally, I suggested that Spolstra hunt mismatches, finding ways to get Murray onto Butler and insisting that Butler look to score off his mid-range jumpers rather than drive and kick, as he tried to do in Game 1. Now, Jimmy was fairly quiet through three quarters, but came alive in the fourth, knocking down two or three mid-range jumpers along with a corner three down the stretch. He didn't do it by getting mismatches, though. He simply got the order, we need you to be more aggressive. And knowing how Jimmy has worn down in some of these games, it's really not surprising to me that he saved his best for last. All that, none of it, might have mattered if the Nuggets did what they're capable of. Coach Mike Malone feared that his team might catch wind of everyone suggesting the Heat were no match for the Nuggets, and he encouraged them not to watch TV or read the hubbub on social media. And I thought, yeah, that's probably smart, and I don't know if they'll listen to it. And based on Game 2... Maybe they didn't, 
But then I thought it didn't didn't really matter. They didn't need to hear it from anybody else. They played the Heat in game one. They had to know that they did not play particularly well in that game, and yet they still had little trouble winning. And it's simply human nature that when you have a task and you complete it easily, the next time you do it, are you going to come with more energy, effort? Are you going to get a better night's sleep? Are you going to think, ah, oh, that was a piece of cake? <laughs> That's what the Nuggets looked to me as if they did in Game 2. They did not take the heat as seriously as they should. The first five minutes, I've watched the game. I've gone back and watched the game three or four times. The first five minutes are an abomination. They were just jacking shots offensively. No rhythm. There was at least three shots that I saw that I've never seen a nugget take before. Just a one-handed, one-footed mid-range jumper just by Jamal Murray. A driving left-handed bank layup by Jokic from about five feet. It was, it was like they just weren't locked in. And then defensively, they were even worse. The amount of space that they were giving and their feet in terms of playing angles, it was, it was just, it was awful. It was awful. And as a result, Heat jumped out to a nice lead. So I understand why it happened. It was still amazing to see in an NBA Finals game. Now, I've seen them play countless lackluster games this season, including in the playoffs, through three quarters, and then they turn it up in the fourth quarter. Actually, lackluster might be a little strong. I've seen them play just well enough to not let the other team build any kind of lead, and then they turn it up in the fourth quarter and they get the job done. They are fully capable of playing the kind of defense they did in the final minutes for much longer stretches. We just didn't see it, for the most part, in Game 2. The team that played the best when they really built their leads was actually when Jokic was on the bench. That's not an accident. That's not an accident. Defensively, he had a harder time trying to figure out who they were going to attack. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Now, they can't play that kind of defense when one of their best defenders, Caldwell Pope, is fouling three-point shooters, which he did twice, including once at an incredibly critical juncture in the fourth quarter. They can't, when Porter Jr. gets completely lost on guard-on-guard guard screens, he's playing flat rather than playing an angle, he doesn't know where the cutter is, so he doesn't go with him, leaving three-point shooters like Vincent and Struess and Duncan Robinson open for clean looks after they've already knocked down a few. The Heat shot damn near 70% in the final period and made five of nine threes. It's actually a miracle that Denver 
still had a chance to force overtime considering all of that. There are, of course, adjustments that the Nuggets can make for Game 3. Much as they did after playing a poor fourth quarter against the Lakers in Game 1 of the previous series, but I really don't know that major adjustments are necessary. Activating Aaron Gordon against Love and forcing Love to be a defender in pick and rolls is certainly one wrinkle that should pay dividends. We saw a little bit of it in Game 2, and it was very effective. They just didn't do enough of it. Porter Jr., simply has to be smarter about his shot selection and more focused on defense. I'm not sure that he took a quality shot the entire game. He has to give them more than five points and more than one of six shooting from beyond the arc. Pope has to give them more than six points and not be a minus 14 overall. Pope looked overhyped to me, playing too fast at both ends of the court, which is how he ended up flying out at three-point shooters out of control. Porter was just consistently a step slow, slapping Bam on the arm as he finished a dunk, having no hope of preventing him from from dunking it, and thereby giving him a three-point play, which gave the Heat an 11-point lead with less than five minutes left. Not your smartest move in the NBA Finals. The biggest concern I would have, if I'm Denver, is that they've played two games in the Finals now. The first two Finals games in the history of the franchise. And they have not played with the concentration and efficiency necessary to win on this platform. The concern would be that this is not just waiting for a wake-up call, but that the magnitude of the stage is too big for them, much as it was or proved to be for the Boston Celtics in last year's finals. That another middling performance and a loss in Game 3 would rattle their confidence and make them start to question if they really have the stuff of champions. I've seen it happen to teams before, no matter how talented. Now, I don't expect that to happen they've been through too much they've responded too many times over the course of these playoffs including on the road this nucleus has been together for too long they had a similar letdown after having their way with the Suns in the first two games of their series and then not playing with any urgency in two losses in Phoenix suddenly making that series appear competitive before they closed it out the next two games Uh, hopefully for Nuggets fans Denver learns its lesson a little quicker. It doesn't take two losses to get back to their game or to get to their game in this case since we haven't seen it yet in these finals. But, as they say, that's why we play the games. Now, my colleague Joy Taylor on Speak on FS1 takes it as a knock on the Heat. That's her team. She's from Miami. Uh, Originally from Pittsburgh, but... She got her chops, her radio chops, in Miami. And I think she went to school down there as well. Anyway, she thinks it's a knock on the heat that I have it as a 2% chance that Miami could win the series. It's not a knock. I am the one who said, with admiration, that the heat weren't bought, they were built. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, that I admire more in sports 
than an athlete or a team, no matter what their level, that maximizes their ability and potential. And that is the Miami Heat. But there's no denying that the Nuggets are more talented. They have four lottery picks, plus the two-time MVP, Nikola Jokic. That doesn't mean an undrafted player can't be great. There are several in the Hall of Fame. Ben Wallace is the first that comes to mind. And Jokic, as a second-round pick, proves that where you are drafted doesn't determine how good you're going to be. All that said, there's a reason players are picked in the lottery versus other players who are picked later or not at all. And the reason is that they have some sort of superior talent. Maybe when they get to the NBA, they don't maximize it. Maybe they have flaws that prohibit them from realizing their talent. Maybe they're drafted by the wrong team and are never developed the way they could be. It happens. All of that happens. But lottery picks who are part of a team in the NBA Finals are generally doing something to realize their superior talent. And the Nuggets have four of those. The Heat, meanwhile, have seven undrafted players. Now, the Heat have some lottery picks on their roster. They just happen to be, well, in the case of Tyler Hero and Victor Oladipo, they're not playing. And Kevin Love is a 14-year vet, not exactly in the prime of his career. And finally, there's Cody Zeller, fourth pick of the 2013 draft and a career backup. I almost forgot Bam Adebayo, 14th pick of his draft. So he is the one legit lottery pick for the Heat in the prime of his career. But the primary players that we're talking about, or at least a big part of the nucleus of this Heat team, are four undrafted players. Max Struess, Caleb Martin, Gabe Vincent, and Duncan Robinson. They've all proved a willingness and ability to commit themselves to do whatever Eric Spolstra needs them to do. But the Nuggets have done the same. Aaron Gordon has embraced being a defensive stopper and rebounder. This is a former number four pick and franchise player. He didn't embrace what he's become right away either. It has taken work and dedication and time. Jamal Murray was a seventh pick who played his first year behind Jameer Nelson and Will Barton and Gary Harris on a 40-42 and 42 Nuggets team. He became a starter the next year, but he was so uncertain about how the Nuggets felt about him when he tore his ACL during the 2021 season that he thought the team might move him or simply let him go. He's earned everything that he's gotten, but he hasn't gotten everything that he's earned. He's still looking for that respect, recognition, whatever it might be. Even Michael Porter Jr., who some thought might have a career-ending back injury, has had to earn his way into the good graces of Mike Ballone, who doles out playing time based on defensive effort and offensive efficiency. And don't undersell what it required him to get into the kind of shape, the physical shape, in order to be able to play as much as he has played. That doesn't happen by accident when you come in with a back issue. My overall point, 
the Miami Heat earned their place in these NBA Finals. But so did the Denver Nuggets. And may the best team win. It's not an insult to one that I think it's the other. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. I'm not kidding. Love hearing from you guys, whether it's a critique or it's a compliment. In the next podcast, we will have played Game 3, and that will tell us a lot about the Denver Nuggets in particular. Am I right about them and that they have just underperformed these two games? Can Mike Malone make adjustments that put him on par with Eric Spolstra, who certainly has earned his stripes by how he's conducted this team through the course of these playoffs, if not before that? Got all that to talk about in the next podcast. We may get games three and four in before I actually get another episode out. I hope that doesn't happen, but it's a possibility. In any case, in the meantime, thanks for listening. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusive Apply. See site for details.